Hi, this is Greg Kilstrom. Welcome to season three of the Agile World, where we discuss customer and employee experience, organizational and workforce transformation, and how business can adapt and continually improve in an Agile age. The Agile World podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full stack technology services, talent services, and real world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, you can go to my website at theagile.world and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile World podcast. Today, we're going to talk about meaningful measurement of transformation initiatives, why existing measurement devices aren't often enough, and better ways to approach finding success in digital transformations. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Peter McCoy, investor, advisor, and co-founder of Baton. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Greg. Excited to chat about everything you just mentioned. Yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, so let's let's start a little bit with your your background. So um, before you started Baton, what's um, give, give me a little detail on your on your background. Yeah, so I guess in lieu with the uh, theme, I should go a little bit further back, but I kind of started my professional career at a hedge fund called Bridgewater Associates, which is a large global macro kind of trading shop in Connecticut on the East Coast. And really what's interesting about them is they're like extremely numbers focused, detail focused, and we're pretty early in a lot of different trading strategies, but mostly around, you know, uh, macro and machine learning in terms of investment engine inputs. So, you know, we can go into that if that's interesting. But I went from there. I started a company called Alluring Logic, which was an early customer data platform on a number of other things for retailers and brands that we scaled up and eventually sold to a large retail group. Uh, then I started a private equity firm called Active and Capital, a number of other folks where we were doing growth stage investing in commerce and commerce infrastructure. So typically, you know, your startups that have already found product market fit and were scaling quickly, we kind of believed there was a big shift going on in how consumers wanted to sh uh, shop, how they wanted their goods to get to them, whether they were digital goods or physical goods, cars, T-shirts, insurance or anything in between. And we were investing in that kind of paradigm shift of kind of how you held, created and moved that inventory. And then that kind of brought me to Baton, which is where we're helping companies better understand how to implement their software. So across all those experiences, I continually saw, especially at my own startup, that, you know, we'd sell a customer on our services or solution. They'd get really excited about working with us. And then it would take months to actually get them live on the solution. You know, at Alluring Logic, that was a, you know, data heavy solution. So we needed a lot of collaboration with the customer. And, you know, there really wasn't a good solution to help us speed up that process or measure that process to understand where it was breaking down and how we can improve it. So we started Baton as a, you know, kind of reaction to that. My partner, Alex, and myself had gone through a number of different entrepreneurial journeys, investment journeys with companies that continually saw the same problem of, you know, there was no centralized source of truth on this kind of workflow in companies, especially enterprise software. So we kind of set out to build Baton to be that centralized hub or you know source of truth, as we like to say, on implementation of the services workflow. That really kind of is where a lot of projects, people, and revenue specifically for enterprise software companies get stuck. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of me that's, in a nutshell. No, that's that's great. And yeah, I I didn't actually I didn't realize you were at Bridgewater. I've I've read a bunch of Ray Dalio's stuff, and so I that. That might be the topic of another show, but that's, <laughs> and that's, but that's, that's really interesting. I mean, I think it's, that's, 
just that that data driven um, approach and everything. Um, I can definitely see how uh, that that thread through what you've done and and through starting starting Baton. And so al along those lines, um, you you hit on this a little bit, but you know, let's talk a little bit more about some of the problems and and some of the challenges that some of these organizations are are having. Like what what are organizations getting wrong? You know, you you say there's no central source of truth and 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 things like that, but how like where does that kind of where does some of those challenges start and and how might an organization approach it differently yeah it's a great question and it has you know a myriad of answers right sure, it really sure. depends on the size of the company like i've been at large companies after we were acquired and kind of just getting initial inertia to even make a decision takes forever so i mean that's probably you know a problem that any large company anywhere it's not unique to any one individual organization but I think, you know, the concept of do does the company want to change is really interesting, right? A lot of companies give lip service or a lot of presentations about wanting to be innovative or wanting to be at the cutting edge and listening to their customer. But I think at the early onset, like there's this idea of like a pull versus push. And most companies go for the push. They try and enforce some like, you know, research report or innovation team internally that came up with some brilliant idea that's going to transform the company because an executive is trying to solve some problem. And typically, I'll tell you that problem is directly linked to their compensation. It's usually the KPI that they are responsible for and how their bonus or stock grant is determined. And that typically is the problem they like to solve where they should be looking for the poll. Like, what are their customers already doing? How are they trying to you know, game the system almost in some cases we've seen a number of companies I've been close to. And when they do do that, that transformation happens very quickly because, you know, your customers are pulling you and the revenue is pulling you in a direction. You kind of lean into that and, you know, for better or worse, you look like a genius for doing so because there's little to no friction there. Right. But I think, you know, that's really one of the big things we see hold up a lot of these projects. And then secondly, probably where you're kind of starting to head is like, there's really no measurement intermittently of how these projects move forward, right? So you might kick off a really big transformation project. Big companies might hire, you know, like a McKinsey, a Bain or someone like that to come in and spearhead this from the strategy perspective of like doing the early research, telling them what's the low hanging fruit they should go after and then, you know, helping them project manage that. And, you know, there's a lot of competing agendas and non-aligned incentives in what I just said there that make a lot of these, especially for big companies, uh, these transformative projects not happen. When you and I were talking in prep for this show, I mean, things like Net Promoter Score and CSAT, it's, you know, when you hire McKinsey or Bain or whatever, they don't give you one of those little buttons that like they have in the airports that like, are you happy today with your, with your project? And even if they did, what would that matter? So, yeah, I mean, what, what are the measurements that, that can be used? I mean, I know you're, you're, you're solving for some of this as well with, with Baton, but you know, what are, what are some of the measurements and how should they be looking at success of these initiatives? Yeah. So that's a good point. I think to harp on your CSET or MPS, like those are great measurements and I don't want to discount them, right? Like if you sell a product like, uh, you know, let's take like a Unilever or someone who sells a CPG product. Like it makes a lot of sense to have an NPS for that. Cause right. that's a product that like there's an end outcome. The consumer is buying the product for, there's a moment in time <clears throat> moment where they purchase it. 
And the minute you open the box, you should be getting close to that value that was promised to you from that product. It's like the idea of like, will people be a net promoter? Meaning will they like go out there and promote or recommend my product to others actually makes a ton of sense. But in that, like if I unpack what I just said, like there's a huge outcome bias to that. The outcome is very closely uh, tied in terms of time, right? Like I get the value from, you know, dishwasher detergent almost immediately after I buy it. It goes in the dishwasher and hopefully it cleans my plates. Uh, But like we're talking about with these transformative projects that are longer term and actually feature a lot of services work or a lot of, you know, human collaboration back and forth, which is basically anything really that happens in the digital economy these days, whether that's software over the internet or, you know, media or something you're consuming, there's a longer tail to that, getting to that value. And I think every company should be hyper-focused on shortening that amount of time to your value. And to your question on like, how do you measure this and how do you ensure like the inertia is there? I think early on, especially for, I'll speak to what I know well, which is, you know, software and software enabled services. I think you have to ensure that like values and incentives are aligned early in your process. And I think a lot of companies get this wrong and we've seen it a lot at the time. I saw it a lot at, you know, the number of tens of, you know, hundreds of investments I'd made as a professional investor and an angel investor. And nine times out of 10, it's the fact that like someone's selling something that the company actually can't do, or they're selling a timeline that isn't possible with the calendar that exists. And that's because there's, you know, again, different incentives inside companies that are pushing for, you know, a faster sale. Whereas there's the team that actually has to execute this, which, you know, has a calendar, has resources, is, you know, out there doing work 24 seven, and they continually are getting new things lopped over the fence to them, we like to say. And there's, again, no transparency into, you know, what they're capable of, what their bandwidth looks like today. But to answer your question directly, I think you really need to think about your process. You need to think about your value. And what we find people who execute on this well do is they break those two things down into processes and then break those processes down into what we've kind of defined as work units. So meaning like if an engineer has to do, you know, a series or a bundle or grouping of tasks, that work unit is inherently technical. It's like you should measure that technical work unit and you shouldn't wait for the entire project to be completed. You should have a way of pulse surveying the people who are engaged or you know collaborating with your internal team or the client team on that technical work unit. You should try to survey them almost immediately after that work unit's done because they're gonna be able to tell you like, hey, you know, Greg did a great job. Peter really screwed this up because he was two days late to you know, whatever the coding assignment was. You're and then when they yourself, move, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's important to really break these things down. So if you're not pulse yeah. serving each incremental like milestone or whatever you want to call them of your project or process, it's really hard to understand where these things go off the rails. It's really hard to understand, you know, where the inertia was lost in terms of if I'm just tracking a project from like a management perspective. So I think step one for anyone who's looking to improve is to really understand the work units and the different functional groups that are working on these projects and understanding how effective each is at the overall goal and not waiting to the very end to measure anything. Because like you said, like NPS and CSAT, they're great, but they have an outcome bias. And typically your champion, when we're talking again about enterprise software, the person that bought your solution. Uh, is you know probably a senior executive at most companies, and they really only care like where are you on time, and where are you on budget. Like yeah. I knew what kind of value I was going to get out of a CRM product, right? Like I know what I'm buying when I buy Salesforce, but like what will upset me as a buyer is like, did that systems integrator do it on time, and were they on budget when they did that? 
And that's what I'm going to remember. I'm not going to have any real good feedback on like, did the person that did our like onboarding or QA or testing or like architectural setup of the platform do a good job? Cause like, I'm not in the weeds with that. And those are the things you as the service provider, you know, vendor, the tech company here really need to know because those are the things that are going to ruin your reputation with those clients that you fought so hard to get. And two, if you're not measuring those, you can't figure out how to improve that process. And specifically for any business that's either like their model is what I would call like a value share or consumption based model, where the more you use it, the more you charge or a typical SaaS per seat model where you charge per month. If you have one of those two business models and you're not hyper focused on improving this process, you're leaving money on the table left, right and center, right? Like every month that you can shave off that process of getting your customer to value or getting your customer live is free revenue to you that you weren't getting before. And if even if it's one month, you shave off like a three month uh, cycle, every 12 customers that you sign in a year, and I imagine most businesses, unless they're doing very large contracts or earlier, signing more than 12 customers a year, that's a, cu- a full customer of revenue a year you're picking up just by hyper-focusing on this process. So like, if you think of it that way, like you're basically signing a new customer every year for every grouping of 12 or however the numbers add up for you. So. I think this is an area a lot of people should be focused on, and sadly, not a lot are. Yeah, absolutely agree. And you touched on this a little bit, but just to dive into from the implementation partner or consulting firm from from that angle as well. I mean, you mentioned a couple of things as that they can do to be more successful in these initiatives, like being realistic about whether that's time frame, budget, all of the above, or even breaking things down into into smaller pieces, but. Um, just to dive into that a little bit more, are there anything else or even maybe to elaborate more on on those pieces, but is there anything more that that, that side of the equation can do to be more, whether it's more realistic or just do a better job in, in implementation so these, these, comp- these buyers can be more successful once things are implemented? Yeah. So, I mean, I think... If you're def- if you're using third-party partners, which probably inherently means your company's already pretty sizable because you're using most of these people so that right. you can scale up or scale down if you get big projects. You don't want to have that headcount uh, hit your margins. I think it's really important that you provide r- real visibility to the client. And I think any consulting SI will be like, hey, Peter, we already provide visibility. We do like monthly or weekly status updates. We do all these meetings to kind of corral the project. And frankly, those are pure bullshit. Like they're showing up, they're just giving you a nice presentation and an Excel sheet. And I can almost guarantee you that data most of the time is at least a week, if not a couple of weeks old. Like they emailed a bunch of people before the meeting to ask for a status update. 50% of them responded. They went through like their Jira boards and their Asana and their Trello trying to see where what was happening and where. And frankly, all those things still require people to manually update what they're doing or to log into a system. And, you know, you know, as well as I, like people just aren't doing that. Yeah. So I think like the key thing you want to do is to get as close to real time uh, as you can and doing that by syncing your reporting tool with other systems where the work's actually occurring and not really requiring someone to log in and double input information anywhere. Uh, And I think surfacing that information in an easily digestible format to the client can actually yield amazing like results in terms of transparency, trust with the client. And second, like ways to triage things when they do go wrong. Like people get mad when you tell them about a surprise they didn't know was happening. 
and they're kind of okay with it. Most people understand, especially at the executive level, like things happen, like nothing ever goes exactly as planned. And if it does, like you should wildly celebrate that. So like getting out ahead of these things and not kind of letting them fester. And in most cases in the services industry, they fester just because there's a lack of light shown on them because the cycles for how we're actually doing reporting are usually at the fastest a week when we do those, you know, Monday morning status report meetings on every project. So I think like what they can do to vastly improve uh, what they're working with the clients is one, just visibility. Like if you can have like a Domino's pizza tracker for where the projects stand and you can share that with the clients, like that is immensely helpful. I think if you're an implementation or consulting partner, that's a little closer to the vendor organization, or if your company's still at the size where they're doing them themselves, Uh, We push everyone to always have a team member from that services implementation success or whoever's handling that for your company involved in the sales process as early as possible. And, you know, Baton to, you know, pump a little bit of our own book, we invented a, a role called the success engineer. And it's very similar to like a sales engineer where, you know, the sales engineer is involved in the sale process to answer technical questions and like do scopes of uh, work and things like that early in the process. The success engineers at Baton, we basically bring them in after the opportunity has been qualified. And we know that these people have, you know, they're the size we want, they're looking to buy soon, they have budget, they have authority, all that fun stuff you talk about in sales strategy. And the sales engineer's job is to make sure the expectations for value and the time to value are realistic. And they come in and, you know, help kind of health check the sales team, like, look, this guy's client needs to go live by whatever today is, the late July, this client needs to go live by the end of August. And they'll be like, look, that's just frankly not possible. <laughs> like, yeah. we can't do it. Look at our calendar. We're like, like, if you want to pay for a premium onboarding and we could, you know, do a rush job, totally possible. And now this is another opportunity for the sales team to sell something they weren't going to sell earlier. But we find that by bringing that implementation partner involved earlier in the process, you actually are able to iron out a lot of the road bumps that would actually occur going forward because that person actually knows the bandwidth of the team. They know the length of the project based on the variables, the offer, you know, prospects telling them, and they know what's possible. So they're also going to be responsible for that client's outcome because now there's not a handoff, so to speak, between sales implementation and success or whoever runs your, you know, your pers- post-purchase organization. There's just one person that's been involved in it the whole time. So yeah. they actually know, like, why did you buy this solution? Okay, this was the value you were looking to get. When we did the ROI analysis, they were involved in making sure those ROI numbers were realistic and something you could hit based on what they understood about your organization. And then when we did the scoping of work for, like, implementation or services, they were the ones that kind of built the rails for you so that you understand, like, hey, this is the plan. This is where we need to really be focused. And this is, like, how we're going to ramp usage over time from, you know, the early MVP of what we install all the way through to the, you know, nth product you bought from us if you're a bigger software shop. So I think there's a lot of value in one, visibility, and then two, bringing those sort of people in as early as possible. And you're going to get a lot of pushback from sales for people that try this because, you know, they don't want any friction involved in the process. But I think you just have to show sales that, like, look, we can sell more. Like, if I sell certainty to your customer that, like, we guarantee you will go live by this premium package and we give you this visibility and the sales engineers involved, like, that's music to their ears. They want bigger deal sizes because that means more commission for them. Yeah. And just so just to clarify, like, where does where does Baton fit in in these kinds of situations? You know, so let's say there's a there's the the client, you know, from my consulting world, <laughs> but there's a the client 
there's the agency or consulting firm and you know how does how does Baton kind of fit into that that mix? Yeah, so Baton is a software platform that helps teams uh, manage scale and provide visibility into the implementation or services part. So what it is really simply is a collaborate collaborative workspace for the vendor, the person selling software, their service providers if they have them or if they have an internal team and the client who's buying the software. So what it does is it enables you to quickly build or you know use templates to have project plans that you can replicate very quickly. So there's no recreating the wheel every time. Uh, we sync with all the tools where the work is getting done and can kind of push and pull information on the tasks that need to be carried out either internally or with the client. We provide ways to nudge all those people involved, whether it's email, Slack, making JIRA tickets or any other methodology from Salesforce to Asana we can integrate with. And we give that project manager one centralized view of all of their projects and what they should focus on that day based on how those projects are you know, working. And then we take all the manual work out of it, those status reports they used to have to do, the kind of NPS and things surveys, like we were talking about pulse surveying, we have a thing called the baton score uh, that just does that. It, nearly every milestone that you've crafted after it's complete, we send out a really quick, you know, three question, one through five survey to the people that were involved on the client side so that they can rate you and tell you, you know, what went well, what didn't. And you can identify, you know, the hiccups in your process or where you might need more resources or less. But generally, Baton's there to help you scale that functions that, you know, typically services teams scale just by heads as you have to keep up with top line growth expectations. But with Baton, we find that, you know, because we take out status reporting, because you're not chasing people down for emails, because, you know, kicking off a project doesn't take two hours. It literally just, you copy paste the template, you assign the people at the client side, you kick it off. And there's a lot of guardrails that I won't get into that enable great project hygiene so that everyone's always assigned. Everyone always knows when their due dates are. And if things move, everyone's quickly alerted. Uh, we find that, you know, people can handle more work and specifically for service providers, like they can focus on billable hours, not non-billable, you know, time tracking, updating status reports and things like that, where they're not actually getting paid to do that. For those organizations out there listening that are, let's say they're like halfway through their, a, a, a big initiative, whether that's transformation or something else, um, is there a point of no return where it's just like, oh man, we got to just like double down and and go forward with what we've what we've already kind of invested in, or are there ways to improve things mid mid project initiative, or you know what what would your advice to be to somebody that's like, man, I wish I would have heard this podcast or or whatever, <laughs> you know, six months ago, twelve months ago, or whatever. Like, what what can what can organizations do? Because there's so many that are already in in progress on on these kinds of things. And we know so many of them fail to meet some of their, their primary objectives. So what, what, what could they do or what should they do? Yeah. I mean, I think it's always obviously better to start before the project kicks off, but I think one of the great things you really can do is constantly looking at your assumptions you made of that project. If you're looking at a high level of like, should we do this transformative strategy move? and constantly stress testing those to see if they're still true. Kind of going back, like, are we pushing or are we being pulled in a direction by our customers and the people that want the value from us? And then if we're just project managing a project that's you know, out there, I think quickly instituting you know, pulse surveys, you could bring in great uh, you know, companies like Sat, Satmetrics and a few other Satrics who can kind of come in here and really help you measure and understand what's going on. 
So I think the ability to, you know, do those pull surveys, it's never too late, even if you're in like the last quarter of a pretty long project or the last, you know, month, I think getting the data and really understanding how it's going and, you know, where it's trending is super important. And like, frankly, we all know we're on projects if they're going well or not, right? Like you right. can tell right. from like the look on the people's faces on a Zoom call or in a meeting room of uh, what's happening and which direction it's kind of falling in. So I think just being able to measure that and, you know, having these assumptions at the start or the end of like, hey, even simple things like we knew it was going to cost this much. This was the date we thought it would go live on and keeping kind of an audit trail of why it didn't and where did we see days get added or costs get added. And if that continues to be a problem over time, like that's an easy resource fix if, you know, those resources exist. So I think like, like, frankly, it sounds cliche, but the measurement and the pulse serving and the breaking things down into like the units of functional work is massively helpful, even if the project's already kicked off, because that's just going to tell you how to improve the next one. Or if it doesn't do that, it'll at least give you some insights into, you know, why that project went pretty well or why that last half of it didn't go well. Well, switch, switching gears just a little bit and, and really just one last question before we, we go, um, you know, you've played a lot of different roles in your career entrepreneur, investor, um, and, and while there are, there are some common threads and, and things, what do you look for? You know, what's, what's kind of a guiding, guiding principle and like where, where you focus your time and energy and, um, and, uh, and what you might do, you know, what you might do next or, or things like that. Yeah. I mean, I guess as an uh, investor and an entrepreneur, like they're pretty much the same. You're investing your time in these concepts and like, you know, frankly, machines that you believe are going to create a lot of value over the long term. And it's things, you, you know, you really want to hold. I've never really been a trader. So there are always things that I want to hold for, you know, several years at a minimum. And I think uh, as an investor, you know, for my personal investments on the angel side, it's usually things that they're really, really intelligent people that I wildly respect, but I disagree with on some like, formulaic or almost like base level assumption they're making about their business and the market opportunity. And I always think that's like super interesting and something I want to be along for the ride on. Obviously there's a number of other ones that are just great entrepreneurs and executors. You're like, yeah, of course I would you know, reinvest in this person again and again and again. Uh, but I think if you're looking for like themes of what I continually like want to see, it's, you know, you want to see an underlying shift in something that's going on in a large market. Uh, whether that's like the software market where we're working with, you know, Baton now is this idea like everything's getting eaten by software, yeah. right? Like every industry from like lumber yards to retail stores to insurance. But yeah. the main thing holding up a lot of this innovation is still people. And like, it's not an AI problem. It's not a machine learning problem. It's literally just like making sure people do things when they're supposed to do them with the right information at the right time. And like the insight on Baton was just we saw that you know most of the tools people were using weren't inherently collaborative and continued to create more work as those uh, businesses scaled, right? Like as your business continued to grow, your service implementation team just had more problems on their hands than they had when they started. So I think I look a lot for like, you know, where is the ball going? Like I grew up playing soccer and you'd always want to, you know, run to space where you think the ball could go. So you have to understand like the dynamics of that market and really understand like, where do you think it's going to be? And then positioning yourself with a company or an investment that can like crawl, walk, run into that. So sometimes that's like an MVP product that's building a wedge into a larger opportunity. And other times it's, you know, building kind of the whole platform. So, you know, if I'm looking at, you know, the arc of my career, it's a lot of that. I think 
the things that fascinate me today is like an investor and an entrepreneur, like companies that have great distribution or distribution advantage. Because if you kind of look out over the arc of technology, even since like the 90s, initially it was like an R&D advantage. And that was just because the cost to set up these tech businesses was so high. And a lot of the underlying systems and frameworks hadn't been built. So now when you look at the companies being built today, I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them are based on open source frameworks or they're leveraging an API to do a lot of the core lifting of what they're building. So I'd say like not a lot of that is technical innovation. Uh, their innovation is more around like go to market and how they actually distribute and replicate that distribution in a cost effective manner. And that's kind of been one thing we've definitely been looking to avoid. Like if you don't look for businesses that have that distribution advantage and you don't look at businesses that are actually like a piece of infrastructure, you're probably just investing in a business that will end up being in the performance marketing game. And that's generally a race to your margins being very low to zero. And you definitely don't want that. So. Yeah, I guess yeah. my advice would be like, look for unique forms of distribution. And if you can't find those, like look for places where you think the, you know, the ball or the puck is going, where you can be an infrastructural layer that can almost be like a tax on that industry long-term because everyone who kind of comes through will have to use it. Well, Peter, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, for those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with what you're doing? Uh, you can check out our website, hellobaton.com. We yeah, are there all day, every day. Great, great. Well, again, I'd like to thank Peter McCoy, investor, advisor, and co-founder of Baton for joining the show. Thanks for listening to The Agile World with Greg Kilstrom. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile World podcast brought to you by Tech Systems. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can learn more and get a copy of my latest book, The Agile Workforce, from my website at theagile.world.